Well, if you don't have your Bibles open, go ahead and open them, if if you will, to the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 6 as we close in on the last uh, three weeks of this sermon series uh, in Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians for coming up to six months here, it'll be, I think. And, um, and uh, it's been, uh, there's so much in the book of Ephesians. It's a really, really uh, rich book for us. Pastor Brian led us off last week uh, really, really well looking at the beginning of uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verses 10, 11, and 12, as Paul talks about putting on the armor of God and uh, being aware of the fact that there is a spiritual battle going on in the heavenly places. And of course, that's where we started the book of Ephesians, uh, praising God for all of his blessings and recognizing that God's great goal is to make his name great in all of the spiritual realms, all of the rulers and the principalities in the heavenly places. Uh, This life, our salvation is not even about us, though we're beneficiaries of God's kindness toward us in Christ, but it's about Jesus making a name for himself, about God the Father making a name for himself and working in the body of Christ uh, to do so. In his book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, John MacArthur writes this paragraph. He says, I'm amazed at the number of Christians being drawn into the burgeoning spiritual warfare movement. I'm convinced it represents an unhealthy obsession with Satan and with demonic powers. And Pastor Brian alluded to this last week. He said we can tend to err in one of two, you know, one of two ditches, right? We can pretend that it doesn't matter or we can get so focused on it that it's not the focus where the Lord wants us to have. Judging from the turnouts, thousands of Christians really believe that if you don't attend a, a spiritual warfare boot camp and you learn some strategies for fighting demons, Satan will have them for breakfast. Is that true? Is there some secret strategy to be learned from the experts in the art of spiritual warfare? Do do Christians need to study mystic techniques for confronting and commanding evil forces, for, and I put this in quotes intentionally, for binding the devil, for breaking the strongholds of territorial demons and other complex uh, strategies of uh, metaphysical combat? Is it simplistic to think that the basic armor of God described in Ephesians 6 is sufficient to keep us from being breakfast for Satan? Absolutely not. It's never simplistic to take the Bible on its own terms, which is to take God on His terms, knowing that God worked throughout human history to give every Christian in their place In the history of redemption, everything that they need for life and godliness. What do I mean by that when I talk about in the history of redemption? Well, God has been saving people through faith for many, many, many thousands of years, right? And uh, so those who lived in the days of Moses and the following generations had everything that they needed in what they knew and what God had revealed to them in order to walk in faith and obey God in everything. Those who lived in Jesus' day in the decades that followed had everything that they needed to understand salvation, to walk in faith, and to obey God in everything. And those who live in the last 1,500 years have everything that we need to understand salvation, to walk in faith, and to obey God in everything. So how do we stand in a biblical way? How do we stand against the great enemy of our souls? Well, we don't need to invent new strategies. We need to to repent of our sins and trust that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is enough to pay the penalty for our sin. 
to, 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 which redeems us and gives us at the moment of our salvation the promised Holy Spirit. We read in Acts where God sent the Holy Spirit, but now we believe that Jesus through the, or the Lord, through His Holy Spirit, indwells believers at the moment they become Christians. We don't need to pray for a second blessing or a special blessing. We need to trust God, repent of our sins, and grow in learning His Word and applying it day in and day out. We need to give our lives, commit ourselves to slowly and steadily learning progressively understanding the Bible. Listen, nobody picks up any textbook. To be clear, this is not a textbook. But nobody picks up any sort of book. Nobody picks up a new hobby. Nobody picks up any kind of a sport. Nobody picks up any kind of an activity. Nobody finds a girl or a guy and immediately knows everything that there is to know about them. So don't be ashamed if you say, well, I don't know the Bible that well. It would be it would be foolish to say, I'm not going to play that sport because I don't already know how to play it. I haven't already mastered it, and therefore I'm not going to play the sport. He said, well, you have a coach, and a coach's job is to learn the skills of his team, to find out who has what experience, what head knowledge they need to learn, and what skills they need to be able to be taught in order to be able to put them into practice, all of that well before they start saying, now, let's take what basic skills you have, and let's improve upon them. Let's help you get better. Let's help you learn more. They're going to start with small, and it's going to increasingly grow as you grow in your knowledge and in your ability. The same is true of the Christian faith. And so we need to put it into practice day by day, challenge by challenge, year after year. But friend, if you would say, I don't know the Bible very well, and that's keeping me from reading the Bible, I would encourage you to do something that is more difficult than you would realize. It's difficult to reach out to someone and say, I really don't know the Bible very well. It's, it's a lot of people. I don't mean that as a, as a, like a broad brush insult, and I don't mean that. But frequently, people will tell me or us that they don't know the Bible very well or they don't understand it very well, and therefore they don't read it. And that will not get you anywhere. You won't grow in your faith without reading the Bible. You can learn from others, sure. You can be taught by others, sure. But as I said a few weeks ago, this book is God's living and active word. Not, not a textbook. It's not just for content. The Lord meets us in His Word. The Holy Spirit connects with our hearts, our minds, as we read this Word. And He empowers us to live as we remember His Word. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having the belt of truth fastened I'm sorry, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that, my, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Remember, he's writing this from prison for his faith. And he's asking for prayer to speak boldly in proclaiming the gospel. For I am an ambassador in chains, that or so that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Every one of us has a vested interest in understanding and applying and owning this passage for ourselves. Uh, we all find ourselves in this war between good and evil. We even joke sometimes, right, about having the, the devil on one shoulder and, the, and, uh, and an angel on the other shoulder. That's not really how it works out in life, but, you know, we kind of think of that imagery sometimes, right? But if we're all in war, then we all need God's armor, I remember being in college and, having, and hearing a pastor preach about the difference between being on a cruise ship and being on a warship. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are on no cruise ship. We are on a battleship because we are in a war, waging war daily against our enemy. And if we are not active in that warfare, if we are not active in seeking the Lord, then well, as Christians, we'll be saved by God's grace, but we'll find ourselves to be ineffective and unfruitful, and the Lord doesn't want that for us. In fact, in fact, the body of Christ, we need everyone in the army, we need everyone on the ship to be actively engaged in this spiritual warfare. We might feel this already not yet tension. I have the righteousness of Christ applied to me through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I have everything I need. God the Father sees Matthew Evan McGee as fully righteous. Now, you don't see me as that way because you know me differently. Well, I'm starting to talk kind of, I'm saying all kinds of theologically incorrect things at this moment. We get focused on what we see, on what we experience. And so you would see my sin. You might be offended by my sin. You will see many of my weaknesses. And temporally, that's what we tend to focus on. But God the Father looks at everyone who genuinely names the name of Jesus, who's repented of their sins, acknowledges that they can't work their way to heaven. The good's never going to outweigh the bad. And he sees us in Christ. The doctrinal term for that is our union in Christ. And everything that is Jesus's is ours from a righteousness standpoint. And every sin that is ours was placed upon Jesus on Calvary. Brother and sister, there is no sin. If you have trusted in Jesus, there is no sin for which Jesus has not fully paid the penalty. <clears throat> there is no sin. You need not live in fear, regret, or shame for one more second. Jesus has paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has 
left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And so we feel this already not yet tension. I know that I am righteous in Christ, and yet I still struggle. And for all of our days on this earth, we will feel and we will know this tension. But there will come a day. There will come a day when the tension will be dealt a death blow and Satan and all of his minions will be defeated. They have been defeated, but eternally the Lord will receive his people to himself. Jesus has already ascended far above, Ephesians 1.21 tells us, all rule and authority and power and dominion. God has made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.5 and 6 tell us. But Jesus has not yet finished building up his body to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4.13 tells us this is an ongoing work for us. The body is being built up in love, but we still need to resist the waves and the winds of doctrine, of human cunning, of deceitful schemes, and the accuser of God's saints. So verse 13 repeats a lot of what was said in 10 and 11, and he is telling us that we are to use everything God has given so that we will be able to, so that we will stand firm. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Take it up. It's yours. It's purchased for you. It's given. Take it up that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Evil days are going to come to everyone. I'm not simply talking about difficult circumstances. I'm talking about particularly evil days. We experience some of it now, but he's not just talking about the fact that we're going to live in an evil world until Christ's return. He's referring to the fact that corporately as a church body of Christ, as a unit, and individually we will face times of spiritual attack that are unusually intense. Sometimes that will come when you're in the depths of despair. In fact, that may be a battle in and of itself, an attack in and of itself, a struggle in and of itself. Sometimes the enemy will come after a tremendously wonderful season or moment in your walk with the Lord. When I was in college, a pastor who discipled me told me, he said, do you play chess? And I said, well, a couple times, but I don't really do very well, so I just don't really play. He said, you need to learn how to play chess. As a pastor, well, really as a Christian, but knowing I was called to ministry, he said, you really need to know how Satan works, how he will get your focus going on over here. And just when you think you're doing well, he's setting setting you up for check and checkmate over here. He will distract you. He'll discourage you. He'll manipulate you all so that he can say checkmate. But fortunately, he can't actually say checkmate because the Lord has already won the battle in our lives. But we need adequate preparation as part of uh, our victory in Christ. Proverbs 24.10 says, If you are slack in the day of your distress, your strength is limited. Proverbs 20 uh, 1 through 33, right? Wisdom mocks the guy who waited until calamity hit to seek her. 
Earlier, earlier this morning, I said, we, we dare not wait until the challenge has come, until the battle has come to our doorstep, that we start rummaging around the house for all of the spiritual armor that we're going to need in order to effectively wage war against the enemy. We need to remember, brothers and sisters, it's not by our own strength that we're to win the war. It's by God's strength, but we need to know how to rightly appropriate the strength that God supplies. God is the one who has won the victory. God is the one who will enable us to win the smaller micro victories or battles, if you will. But we need to know, we need to know how to appropriate it. We don't need to learn a complicated formula. We don't need to memorize lots of different steps. The Bible is simple in James chapter 4. He says, submit therefore. Now, we don't have time to go into it now, but look in your Bible for so that, or that, or therefore, or because, or on account of. Those phrases clue you in to understanding what was right beforehand, based on what everything that we have learned in Ephesians and in James, as James writes, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith. Who is our faith in? Church, who is our faith in? It's in God. You're not sure which person of the Trinity to mention right now, I think, because that's a little bit what's going on. Confidently say, our faith is in God who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The creator of all the universes, where our faith comes from. Submit to the Lord, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We're committed to flee from sin, but we're committed to resist the devil. You hear that, church? When tempted with sin, run. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation is common to, to man. No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man. But that God is faithful, and He will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to stand up under it. So we stand up or we flee from sin temptations, when it comes to the devil, we resist and we stand firm in the faith. We remind ourselves of the promises of God, of who we are in Christ, and that the devil, the devil can't do anything to us. He has no victory over us. He has no say over the Christian's life. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he didn't eat for 40 days or 40 nights, and then he was tempted. And at each point, he he appropriated the truth of God for the temptation that was brought before him at each point. When he was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had an honest conversation with his father. Is there any other way that this, but that this cup, but that I drink this cup? I'm paraphrasing. No, no, no. Okay, not your will, not my will. Your, bill, your will be done. We don't need to find the right technique. We need to 
even now be in the Word, fellowshipping with the body of Christ, allowing the Spirit of God to move and work in our lives so that when the enemy comes and he will come and come again and come again, we can resist the devil, stand firm, knowing that God has promised that he will flee. We need to secondly fasten on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness. And we'll look at verse 14 and then we'll save the rest for next week. Stand firm, therefore, having, or stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the whole book of Ephesians that we've read so far is structured on this idea that, uh, uh, of the objective truth of our position in Christ and that that reality is the foundation for practical righteousness. And so if you're unsure of your walk with Christ, I would encourage you to spend some time with another believer who knows you. Uh, it doesn't know all of the crevices of your heart necessarily, but they know you well enough to have honest conversation with you, someone that you can trust as you talk about your relationship with the Lord. But at the end of the day, pray the Psalm 139 prayer, which says, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, help me to know, am I a follower of Christ? Am I relying on my works to get to heaven, or am I trusting and resting in you, even though I know I'm far from perfect, right? In, in, in verse 13 of chapter 1, the message of truth, which is the gospel of our salvation. In chapter 4, 15, we're to speak the truth in love. In 4:21, he speaks about the truth that, in G, that is in Jesus. In 4:24, he says that we're to put on the new self, which is in the light, which, I'm sorry, which in the likeness of God has been created in Christ Jesus in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 25, therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth to one another with your neighbor. Verse 5, 9, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness. If you think about uh, Ro Roman soldiers, they would wear this tunic, right? It was like a square piece of cloth with sorry, there's, sometimes there's a convenient way to do that, not always. It was a square piece of cloth that had holes in it for your arms and for your head, and, uh, and so it was kind of awkward. So they'd wear this tunic, uh, and uh, for everyday normal experience, it might have been fine, but um, it would drape loosely over their body, right? Um, the greatest part of their combat in that day was a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat. <clears throat> and so this loose tunic would have been a danger to themselves uh, in a battle, right? And so before a battle... They would cinch it up, they would tuck it into the heavy leather belt that girded the soldier's loins. And so they would, they would gird up themselves for battle. They would be ready for battle in that way. And we are to gird ourselves with the belt of truth. It basically refers to the content of God's truth, which we see completely in the Word of God right? Uh, I would use the, the phrase um, uh, sufficiently, fully. All of God's truth, for example, is not comprehensively in the Bible, right? There are other truths of life that we learn and how to live our life. But when it comes to our faith, everything that we need to know for life and for how to live godly is in the Word of God. And we need to know the Word of God. We need to apply it to our lives, uh, the, wor the word for truth here, aletheia, can also refer to an attitude of truthfulness, not just the accuracy of a specific truth, but the quality of 
truthfulness, right? And that seems to be the meaning that uh, Paul has in mind here. To, the Christian is to gird himself or herself in an attitude of total truthfulness, to show an attitude of readiness and of genuine commitment to the things of God that are right in our lives and that are applied to our lives through Christ on the cross. It's a mark of a clear and sincere believer who fakes, I'm sorry, who, um, uh, who, who shuns hypocrisy and he shuns that would, which would be a sham. And we're to get rid of every encumbrance that might be a part of our lives and so as you think about that, you think there's a soldier getting ready for battle, there's a, a race, a runner getting ready to race. None of these things convey a picture of mediocrity. None of these things convey a picture of just sort of a ho-hum response waiting for when whatever situation might come, and I'm pretty sure I'll do okay. After all, the Lord has won the battle for me. We don't see any of that when we read the Scriptures, there's no place for that perspective in our lives. And I would encourage you, if that's your, if that's your perspective, if that's the, the approach, if that's the effort you're putting forward into your walk with Christ, I just want to urge you, brother and sister, to be ready for the battle. I don't want to, sh- I don't want to shame you. I want to encourage you. I want to admonish you to say, there's a real battle that is being waged in the heavenly places as we speak and as we listen right now. And it comes and goes with varying levels of intensity in our lives in different ways. And so we can't be content with lethargy or with indifference or with half-heartedness. We need to have the right content of the gospel message and how God has called His children to live and how God has worked with His people throughout salvation history. And we need to have an attitude of total, total truthfulness in the way that we seek to live our lives. And then he tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, as you think about this, in ancient Jewish thinking, the heart represented uh, the mind, the will, the, the bowels were like the seat of our emotions and our feelings. So we use the word heart, refers to a lot of things in that sense, right? Uh, not just the physical, uh, physiological component in our heart, that muscle that keeps our blood moving through our bodies. And what we're to do is we're to take this breastplate of Christ's righteousness. And, and a breastplate would cover all the essential organs, right? You can get shot. You can take one in the shoulder. We see it in movies all the time, right? Take one in the shoulder. Okay, no problem. We're all going to experience some wounding. But we don't want that which is the seat of our affections, the seat of, of who we are, what we know, what we believe, to be assaulted by the enemy and not be protected by the righteousness of Christ. You see, you may be living in a way that when, when the enemy comes after you and says, oh, look at that sin you just committed. You're not really a Christian. Well, we know how to respond to that kind of an attack. In part, we agree. Not that we're not a Christian because of it, but we acknowledge, yeah, that's right, I did sin. You have no power over me. We both know the same thing. I committed this sin. I committed it again. But I'm not saved based on how often I run away from that sin. I'm saved because when Jesus faced that sin or any sin like it, he endured righteously every time. That means he did everything perfectly he was supposed to do, and he did not do things that he should have done. And when Jesus gave his life on, the Cal- on Calvary, and when I repented of my capital S sin in my life, all of Christ's righteousness was applied to me. 
And so I stand righteous in Christ. So yes, accuser, I sinned. But thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, I am alive. And I continue for another moment. I continue for another day. Righteousness is to be taken. It's to be wrapped around our whole being, as it were, just as ancient soldiers would have covered themselves with a breastplate of armor. We need to to live in daily, moment-by-moment obedience to the Heavenly Father. This is part of God's armor that He has given us for holy living. Now, we say holy, we might get the wrong idea. We might get the wrong idea when we say holy. We might be thinking of something like, oh, we're supposed to be like... uh..." I'm thinking of how people say it to me sometimes, you know? Yeah, I love the Lord. I mean, I'm not that holy, but... Oh, you're not? We're not to be self-righteous. We're not to be confident in our own pursuit of holiness. But we are to strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. To be holy is to be set apart. To be holy is to be more and more sanctified, which is to be set apart, more and more conformed to the image of who God has created us to be in Him. And we want to give our attention to that. We want to give our, our, the all of who we are to knowing the Lord more fully and to walking with Him more faithfully. And when we sin, and we will, and you will, and I will, we're in a community of believers where we can help one another understand how we can better conquer that sin by whose power? By God's power. Stand firm with the strength which God supplies. Stand firm in the strength of the Lord. It's always the Lord's strength. It's always what God supplies for us. And who are we? We're beggars who come dependently, confidently knowing that every time we go to the Lord and we ask Him for help, He will provide. He will supply. Friend, that's not weak. I should say it's not weak in the wrong sense of the word. Paul said, I will boast in my weaknesses. For when I am weak, he is strong. When I acknowledge my weakness, the Lord works in me and through me. And so we have truth and we have righteousness together with the rest of the armor of God that readies us for the ongoing war that is raging in us for the war that is raging around us. And next week we'll finish up this important section of Paul's letter as we look at the gospel of peace as shoes for our feet, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. And all of this, brothers and sisters, is undergirded by prayer, by constant, ongoing, intermittent conversation with our Heavenly Father who delights to engage with His children. As we come to this time where we get to respond to what we're hearing and and how the Lord is working in our heart, we get to to come, we invite you to come to one of the four corners in our uh, gym worship center here, and you're going to have a cup of juice. And you know it's just juice, but it's important as we remember that Jesus Christ gave his life. His blood was spilled. In the Old Testament, God said that Uh, Without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sin. Jesus gave his blood for us. 
And so we drink, and we drink juice as a remembrance, but an important remembrance. We, we eat this little, uh, this little uh, chip of bread made from unleavened bread that, that represents what the body of Christ did when they quickly skirted out of Egypt when God provided for that salvation, they, they, for their salvation from the hands of the Egyptians. And they skirted out quickly. Why? They didn't, they didn't even have time to let their bread rise, so to speak. Just kind of bringing in a couple of pictures of what we remember when we remember communion. Jesus gave his body on the cross for us. And so we eat and we drink and we do it regularly when we meet because the Lord said, do this when you meet in remembrance of me until I come again. If you're here this morning and uh, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe not just that he exists, but that he lived a perfect life, he died a death that that he didn't deserve to die. But he willingly, out of love, gave his life for you. And then you have acknowledged you can't work your way to heaven, but you've trusted in the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus Christ. And you say, on that alone is my faith. When I get to heaven, the proverbial question is always asked, and the, well, whoever meets it, whatever that's going to look like, but they say, why, do I, why should I let you into heaven? We just say, Jesus. Jesus. Then we invite you to come and eat and drink the Lord's Supper with us. You may not be sure, and we just want to encourage you to use this as a time for prayer, to commit your heart to the Lord, to commit your ways to the Lord, to ask the Lord for insight even into your own life. Where do you stand with the Lord if you're not sure? Come, I'd love to talk with you. Any of the, the elders here would love to talk with you or a friend that you know here that maybe brought you here would love to talk with you and we'll pray with you together. Let's commune together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for your power over creation, the demonstration of your power through creation, which reminds us which communicates to us in a, in a broad sense who you are, that you're God, divine, that you're eternal, that you're all-powerful. And yet we know that you gave us your word as your specific special revelation that contains the specifics of the truth that we need to know you and to walk faithfully and to follow you. As we talk about the armor of God, as we talk about believers around the world who are facing persecution, Lord, we acknowledge that there is a, a war that is being waged, and it impacts us. And so, Father, I pray, as we did for those around the world, Lord, I pray for those here who are experiencing the effects of an enemy who is seeking to steal and kill and destroy. I pray for those who are experiencing seasons of attack by the enemy. Father, I pray that you would help them to be girded, confidently understanding the truth, wherever they're at right now, understanding the truth that they know and clinging to it with confidence, and that they would protect their, their beliefs, their heart, their understanding, and their will would be driven from the righteousness that is in Christ Jesus, which has been given to us.
so that we can walk faithfully in this world. We're your servants, not the enemies. And we want to wage war faithfully, confidently, not in ourselves or in our own abilities, but in you. We want to walk in your shadow as you win the battles, as we stand firm and we resist our enemy. Thank you for your promises, Lord, that we are able to do just that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.